Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette. I'm an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com, and sitting next to me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there. All right. We're going to get back into our discussion of uh, our discussion that we had long abandoned. For those of you who are longtime listeners, we used to talk about some of the personalities that we think had a huge impact on the tech world, and uh, we kind of haven't done it in a while. Yeah, we 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 hit a few big names early on, like Dean Kamen and uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and then we kind of went quiet for a while. So we thought we'd go back and revisit that kind of a uh, 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 you know topic. It's it's interesting to talk about. So today. We are talking about Vinton Vent Surf. All right. Where so, do you want to start? From the beginning. Yeah. Well, a lot of you, uh, you younger listeners might not have ever heard of him. Yeah. But he's very important. As he a is. matter of fact, you probably would not be listening to us at all if it were not for Actually, Vent Surf. Actually, we probably wouldn't have the jobs we have right now if it weren't for Vinton Surf. Thank you, Mr. Surf. Right. Um, and Actually, Dr. Yes, Dr. Surf. Uh, in fact, he holds many degrees. Yes, he does. Um, lots and lots of degrees. So he has a he has a PhD in computer science, and uh, um, he has a bachelor of science in mathematics, and then he has all these honorary degrees. Um, smart, smart guy, wicked smart, you might say, if you were from the Northeast. Um, so he's also referred to very often as one of the fathers of the internet, mm-hmm. and you might wonder why that is. Like, did he actually build the physical? Uh, machines that make up the internet. Well, to, to really understand this, we need to go back a little before Vinton Surf became involved in this project. How far back? All right. So back in the fifties, the 1950s, the 1950s. Yes. Not the 1750s or anything like well, that. Uh, not know, going that far back. Yeah. The 1950s. All right. So the Soviet Union launches Sputnik. All right. Very small, round, silver thing that beeped a lot. Yeah. It went beep. That's pretty much all it did. And, um, it scared the pants off everybody. It scared people. And it scared people for two reasons. One, they were thinking, does this mean that the Soviet Union can spy on the United States? Because the United States and Soviet Union were then engaged in what was known as the Cold War. Answer and that it, is yes. And, and even more frightening than that, if the Soviet Union had the capability of launching a rocket into space, it could also launch a rocket at the United States. Right. And cause massive amounts of damage. Now, at this time, computers were rare. There are only a few computers in the United States, um, and they were big, huge machines taking mm-hmm. up entire floors of buildings in some cases. And um, they're centralized. They were not able to communicate with one another in any easy way. So there was a, a need to find a way to have computers communicate with one another so that you decentralize this computing power. Um, because the idea was that if, if there were an attack on the United States on one of these computing sites and it was hit, uh, you would lose that information forever. Right. So you wanted to find a way where you could move information around very quickly and you wanted to create it in such a way so that if one particular site were hit, the entire network could still function without it. Right. So this was, uh, this became the, the, uh, area of interest for the Department of Defense. Um, they had the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which at the time was called ARPA. We now know it as DARPA. 
Um, and they wanted to come up with this computer network idea, a way of networking computers together so they can communicate. And, uh, and so the ARPANET project began. Yeah. So this see, was the late sixties. Right, right. And, uh, that might sound somewhat familiar to you because you're thinking, well, you know, the internet is a bunch of computers connected together. Yes. That, that, you know, hey, look, that's the internet. Well, yes, but not quite yet because no, it's, it's more than that. All these computers were all running different and very odd operating systems in a lot of cases written specifically for that machine. Right. And, uh, and so they didn't really talk the same language. Exactly. And the internet is really a network of networks. So it gets a little more complicated. ARPANET was really just a network. That's true. Yes. The, the internet, ARPANET was, the, the internet didn't exist on the scale that it did, does now. Right. In fact, at the beginning, ARPANET only had four nodes, um, four computers that were connected to one another. So it was one network. But yes, as Paulette pointed out, each of these computers had its own sort of proprietary language. Um, now they could all understand binary. Uh, but you right. know, that's about it. So one of the challenges was to find a way to connect these computers together physically, uh, because they were located miles and miles and miles apart, um, across the United States in one case. And then mm-hmm. beyond that, find a way where once they're physically connected, how can they actually exchange information? So in the 1970s, now remember 1960s was when ARPANET, the project started. Now in the 1970s, Vinton Cerf joined the ARPANET project. And it was Vinton's job, along with a couple of others, including Robert Kahn, to come up with a way to create a protocol, a set of rules, for these computers to use to communicate with each other that any computer could understand. Yep. Now, the original protocol was the uh, network control protocol, wasn't it? Network, uh, something like that. It was a network communication protocol, I guess is what it was, the NCP. Yeah, and, I, I remember it by its initials. I don't remember right, what the initials yeah. I pro- stand for. Someone will write in and correct me, so that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I'll, I'll address that in a future episode. But the NCP, uh, um, the problem with the NCP was that it didn't scale very well. Uh, it just no. didn't have the capability to handle lots of computers. It worked fine for a small scale. And Vinton Cerf originally worked a little bit on this project. But everyone realized they needed to find something new if they wanted to create a real network of networks. I believe that's network control program. Control. I, that's the only C I didn't hit. <laughs> All right. So you don't have to write in because Paulette actually just pulled up this useful thing called Google, which I've heard about. You know, it, it, it works over this thing called the Internet. Yeah. Oh, well, we're getting there. And that runs on. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> what we're getting to is the TCP slash IP protocols. And I, I know there's someone out there right now who's yelling at me because the P stands for protocol and I said protocols. Just, uh, you know, take a volume, take a deep breath. It's going to be all right. So <laughs> these, the, the TCP and IP protocols. Uh, so you might be wondering, all right, so what the heck are these things? So IP stands for internet protocol. And TCP um, is transmission control protocol. Yes. And the IP, what that does is it moves the packets of data around from one node to another. That's the, that's the set of rules that governs that transmission of information. Yep. Like everything else computer, it has to be planned down to a, a very fine set of details. And so this is basically the highway part of the information superhighway, if we're going to overuse that metaphor. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it has to have the, the right paving that the cars can travel on, if we're going to go with that. Okay. So uh, the TCP IP helps packets get from one place to the other because, you know, they need the right type of uh, 
of transmission to get from one place to the other. So that's the one that everybody has settled on now. Right. It's very efficient. It works, you know, so, very well. And the transmission control pro- protocol part is, uh, that's what is responsible for verifying the correct delivery of data from client to server. Mm-hmm. So, they're kind of two different protocols that are always grouped together, so we almost think of them as a single entity. That's why you usually hear TCP slash IP. Mm-hmm. Um, and without it, we wouldn't have a, a standardized way of uh, of exchanging information across the network, which would mean that when you had two different networks and you wanted to connect the two, you would have to find a brand new way to have them communicate without this protocol. But because this was set upon so early – um, we can thank Fenton Surf for creating a, a way for different computer networks to exchange information. So if you work at a, uh, at an office that has its own computer network, or if you go to a college or school that has its own network that also connects out to the internet, the TCP slash IP, those, those protocols, that's what allows you to, to get that information. Otherwise, you would only be restricted to whatever happened to be on your local area network. Yep. And I think, uh, I think this important piece of work is why he is so widely recognized, although there are so many other things that he's involved in. Um, you know, of course, now he's the vice president and chief internet evangelist for Google. Yes. I like that. Chief internet evangelist. Step forward and be healed. Click here. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, not exactly. I know. I'm sorry. I was brought up. In the Bible Belt. So. Well, that's you know that's one form of evangelism. Yeah. But uh, yes, he I does. Know. He is sort of a an ambassador for the internet. Not like the internet needs one. No. Um, but yeah, he's he's um he's a big important guy over at Google. In fact, he, he was so important that uh, he was on the list of a lot of people's um, guesses for who Obama might pick as CTO. That's true. That's true. That's a brand new office. Uh, the the uh, chief technology officer of the United States, mm-hmm. um, and he was on a, a list of some very distinguished names. Yes, uh, but was not ultimately chosen. No, um, but, but that's uh, that's neither here nor there. Let's, no, let's no, stick no. on Mister Surf. Well, I'm I? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure he would have left Google anyway. Yeah, I don't it's know. It's a pretty either. sweet gig. It is a pretty sweet gig. <laughs> so. So let's say, all right, so he, he was working with DARPA until the early 80s. Right. Um, so through the 70s into the 80s, he, he, helped, he and Robert Kahn helped define exactly how the transmission of data was going to, to happen across networks. Right. Uh, in the early 80s, now remember, this is, this is back when the Internet is still pretty much just in the realm of government agencies and universities. So he leaves and, be, and joins uh, MCI, mm-hmm. becomes the vice president of MCI for a while. Uh, then for a while, he was wor- a vice president for the Corporation for Natural Research Initiatives. National at- Research Initiatives? Yes. I thought you said nas- natural. So national, didn't I? I don't know. Well, then uh, Corporation for National Research Initiatives. Naturally. And because um, <laughs> I do do that. It happens. But then after that, he went back to MCI, became a senior vice president. Uh, he was there until about 2005. And eventually then he made his way over to Google where he, um, he, he still does a lot of important, uh, presentations. Um, he's still very much involved in, and things that are, uh, transmission of data across networks. I mean, he's still very, very heavily involved in that kind of work. Well, it, it makes a lot of sense, you know, given how invested Google is in the internet, you know, not just the search engine aspect of the company, but, uh, you know, they, they do so much innovative 
work on new initiatives that uh, sure. it makes sense that they would want someone along who had that kind of experience. Well, I mean, they, their goal is to organize the world's information. That's That goes so far beyond just the Internet. In a way, you think the Internet search engine, that was the first step. Ultimately, Google will be in charge of everything. Or yeah. else. Which is why I joined ranks early. <laughs> Working my way up. You, you know your place in the... Uh, in the Google in the hierarchy, order. yes, yeah. exactly. I'm 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 a low level evangelist for Google. Oh, okay. So, um, but yeah, let's let's talk about some of the other stuff. He's he's also involved in the uh, um, in uh, the the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Yep. He's uh, he's working on a design for interplanetary internet. Interplanetary internet. Yeah. I, I you know what I didn't turn that one up. You didn't know that. No. Yeah, that was one of the projects that the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is working on is finding a way to create. Internet links so that when man does colonize things like the moon or Mars, that there is a way to have Internet uh, communication between the Earth and wherever those other folks happen to be. You know, when they when they get to Mars and some of those other places, they're going to find that there's a Starbucks and a subway on every corner. Are they? Yes. Well, I was thinking that when they get to Mars, they're darn well going to want the Internet because – what else is there going to be? To, I mean, besides surviving, what else do you have to do? That's a good point. Like, how's the weather? Red. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> you know back, back to uh, back to Vince Surf, though. Oh, right. We were talking about him. Yeah. I uh, I was amused to find out that he was a technical advisor for Gene Roddenberry's Earth, Earth Final, Final Conflict. Conflict. And he even made a guest appearance yes. in uh, 1998. Yes, I remember it well. He's even been on Next Wave with Leonard Nimoy. Oh, live long and prosper. So, <laughs> so you know, yeah, he's, he's a happening guy. Yeah, yeah. I Plus, have, he's a you know a, a fellow of the I Triple E. Yes, yes, and he sat on the board of ICANN and uh, ACM and AAAS. And he has the American he has, Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has more awards than I can even count. I know. I, I actually, uh, honestly, guys, I honestly had. A photo of Vince Cerf hanging in my cubicle until fairly recently. That is very impressive. It was given to me by our own Candace Keener. All right. Uh, after I, I had no idea. I wrote in. Well, this I was, know I'd seen it there, but I didn't know that's where it came from. For those of you who are who are keeping up with all of our podcasts and you know Candace Keener from the uh, stuff you missed in history class, Candace used to be my editor, but then apparently she did something right. And I got shifted over to Paulette, who apparently was behaving poorly, and that's why he has to be edit me. So, uh, but yes, uh, back when Candace was my editor, I wrote a couple of articles about ARPANET and how did the internet get started, which involved Vent and Surf. And, uh, it was apparently quite clear that I admired the man, and so she printed out a, a photo of Mr. Surf, Dr. Surf, um, with a, a loving message beneath it. And, uh, I had that up in my cubicle until very recently. Well, I took it down when when Discovery Communications people came through the office. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I I just think that Doctor Surf is one of those people that has had such an am, uh, amazing role in all of our lives, but you just don't really know. Yeah, what, so he's not you know. one of those personalities that gets out there and uh, you know, as, as not not sort of an attention hound or anything like that, and and he's definitely not you know the. He's not in the foreground of any particular movement or anything. So it's quite possible that if you're not, you know, if you're not a student of the internet, you wouldn't even know his name. 
that that's uh that's very true and there are lots and lots of other people who have played a part oh sure like that yeah the the, the team we should we should hasten to add that the team that designed arpanet and the the other systems that eventually morphed into the internet uh, was rather large. Um, there were dozens of people involved in this, not just Vin Cerf and, and Robert Kahn. There were plenty of others. And, um, uh, and all things considered, they built it in a very short period of time. Yeah. Got it to work. Um, just very impressive. Yeah. And it's one of those things where people were impressed at that, uh, that things like the, the TCP slash IP was able to scale so well because mm-hmm. originally there was talk of, of, do, of redoing it before the internet really took off. Mm-hmm. Um, but they discovered that it was much more robust than they had, they had uh, anticipated. So it ended up serving just fine. Um, that's probably one of the, the reasons why some people talk about the need for an internet two, because we can build on what we learned from internet one and create an even better system. Now, the thing is that in the original internet is so well entrenched at this point um, does it make more sense to create a brand new system or does it just make more sense to keep on adding to the one we've already got? I sense foreshadowing here. What? Then maybe we'll do an article or, or, or a podcast later about Internet 2? I wouldn't say that we're going to do a podcast later about Internet 2. No, you wouldn't. No. But we are. Okay, so you did. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. It, it'll probably come much later after we've done a lot more research. But – um yeah, it's, you know, it's a testimony to how well it, it works and how robust it is that we're still using it yeah, definitely. 30 years later. Yeah, yeah, 30 yeah. plus years later. So. And now granted, now most of us are only been using it for since the, at, at the earliest since the early 90s. Yeah. I, I guess some, some of us probably earlier than that if we worked on government systems or in colleges. But, um, I remember my first, uh, real, Encounter with the internet had to be when I got into college. So sometime around 93, maybe something like, you oh, young I, just, I just gave away my age. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Darn. Mine was before that. So I'm, I remember the that. clay tablets. I remember. Yes. I wrote about that. <laughs> so anyway, right. that's a, that's a, that's a, just a brief rundown on Mr. Uh, Dr. Surf. Um, and hopefully you learned a little bit more about him in this podcast. Uh, he's, like we said, a very fascinating person. So, it, you know, if you want to read more, there's plenty of information out there about him. And as we said, he's still very much active in guiding the way we transmit information. So once again, thank you, Dr. Surf, because I like this job. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, that wraps up all I had for to talk about. Do yeah. you have anything else you want to add? Not really. Well, I guess that just brings us back round again to... Listener mail. You know, you can thank TCP IP for allowing you to hear that sound. Yeah, or curse it, whichever is you, know, you prefer. I know which I prefer. So this email comes from Robert in Indiana. Hi, just wanted to write and tell you guys I love your podcast. I had a question, though, about IP addresses. What exactly are they and why are they important? So we, you know, we talked a little bit about the internet protocol. So I yep. uh, th- thought we could kind of hit IP addresses. Um, one of the ways the one of the reasons the internet actually works is because the this the this IP address idea it gives uh, it's like a physical address in a way, except that you know it's not anchored to a physical location. Mm-hmm. But it's what allows computers to find one another so that you can transmit information to and from one computer 
and you know, or two different computers really, or actually hundreds and hundreds of computers when you actually look at the the process. Right. But uh, without IP addresses, no computer would know where any other computer was, and you wouldn't be able to get any information at all. So your IP address, you can think of it sort of like a street address in a way. Again, it's not tied to a geographic location, but it is how your computer identifies itself and identifies other computers so that trans, uh, the transmission of information can occur. Yeah, um, it's actually very not particularly pleasant to look at. No. It's, uh, in most cases, uh, four sets of numbers. Right. Um, separated by dots. Yes. Um, and generally it might be something like 0.101.205.6. Oh, you're going to get emails. No, go ahead. <laughs> what? No, 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 go ahead. All right. Anyhow. Yeah. That's, that's IPv4. Right. Um, and that's, that's generally what we use now. And there are a, a lot of different combinations that you can create with that, which gives us a lot of different IP addresses. Of course, um, Coming up, they're working toward a newer system called IPv6, which offers even more combinations of numbers. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not like, you know, 254th Main Street. You right, know. right. Uh, the, it just uses a series of, of numbers and dots that, that help, you know, the information get to where it's going from right. one place to the next. And the, what you're familiar with, domain names, those are really just kind of a, it's just sort of a mask that sits on top of the IP address. Yeah, that sort of humanizes the IP address. Makes it, it makes easier, it easier to remember. Pretty, yeah. And yeah. Otherwise, we would have to remember these strings of numbers to send information to specific um, computers. And that wouldn't necessarily work so well because not every computer has a static IP address. That's fact, a, I would think most don't. That's very true. Actually, I, I used to work for an internet service provider. And um, one of the things they found out was that, uh, you know, they couldn't, if everybody had a static IP address, which means one that doesn't change, um, they had to continue to buy more IP addresses. Right. And the problem with that is, you know, well, say John hasn't been home for a week and his IP address is going unused. So finally they said, you know, look, we need to assign these dynamically. You'll see dynamic IP addressing. Well, that means we've got a pool of 50,000 IP addresses and 45,000 people are online at any given time. Then we can just assign them as needed. You know, it's yours as long as you're online and it doesn't change. Um, and as soon as you log off, it gets reassigned to somebody else and all the information that goes from that person's computer to the Internet and back with whatever information they're doing or they're using um, gets to where it's supposed to be going. But that's the difference in static and IP, uh, static and dynamic IP addressing. And, uh, you know, it is a, a hard and fast identifier, but your ISP is probably assigning one to you uh, on the fly, depending on when you're online. Sure. And Robert had one other question that we might try and answer. Okay. Can I be hacked if someone finds my IP address? Technically? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Scary, huh? But they would have to know, the thing about that is they'd have to know exactly where you are. Right. Uh, I mean, somebody could randomly hack, you know, direct an attack at that IP address. Uh, you could get a denial of service attack mm-hmm. sent to your IP address, um, where people try to send you a lot of messages all at once and uh, take you offline. And that could that could work very easily. But they would have to know where you, you know, if it was going to come at you from a specific person, just what are you afraid of? Um, <laughs> then uh, who have you been ticking off? Yeah, Robert? Who have you been upsetting here? Hope it wasn't Mitten Surf. 
dude's smart. But yeah, he could probably figure out yeah. where, where your IP address. This was mostly theoretical. They'd have theoretical. to know your IP if you were online at that yeah. particular time. It was, this was theoretical until recently, I believe. Yeah, yeah, mm. it is. It is possible. I mean, you can also spoof an IP address, which. Uh, ugh. Uh, you know, basically you appear to come from one IP address. You know, somebody, uh, if you had a static IP address assigned to you and somebody else wanted to, um, you know, launch an attack on somebody else and make, make it look like it was from you, they could spoof, uh, they could appear to be coming from your IP address and then, uh, then everybody would come back to your house and go, Hey, what are you doing? Yeah. What? Why you hate me so much? <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, so it's um, theoretically possible, but it's kind of improbable. Right. I mean, especially if you're on a dynamically assigned IP address yeah, from because, your IP, yeah. like a, an average person would be. Because then it's a one in 50,000 shot. So, using the example you used earlier. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not going for numbers that I didn't bother to look up. Well, no, that was just an example. Okay. When, when we're talking about major ISPs, we're talking about huge numbers here. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I was just using your, your little example. Oh, my, my 50,000. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That was it. So thanks very much, Robert, for your email. Uh, if any of you have any questions for us, you can write us techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And remember, at howstuffworks.com, we have lots of articles about everything from IP uh, to domain name servers, everything in between. So check that out, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?